Shani Jamila, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. This show is actually part of my practice as a conceptual artist. My work, which is made in response to centuries of family records meticulously researched by my genealogist grandmother, explores ancestry, identity formation, and the idea of home. On Lineage, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow socially engaged Black artists about these same themes. Today, my guest is the fantastic painter and sculptor, Fierle Baez. Born to a Dominican mother and Haitian father, Fierle spent her earliest years in the Dominican Republic before moving to the U.S. as a child. Her works explore themes including migration, Caribbean histories, and Octavia Butler-inspired fantasy. Within just the past year, she was shortlisted for Art Mundi 9 and will present her largest sculpture to date at the ICA Watershed in Boston this summer. It opens on July 4th. And then, just four days ago, she was named recipient of the very prestigious 2021 Rome Prize. She's on a roll, and I'm so pleased that she's here with us. Fierle joined me for this interview from her studio in the Bronx. We begin with the question about her first childhood memories. So my first memories were like, I think I am the only person to repeat kindergarten twice. <laughs> so I did my first year of kindergarten in that countryside in Loma de Cabrera. And I was always, I think if, if I look back on it now, I was probably ADHD. I was like highly distracted, always in the clouds, always trying to draw, do something other than like whatever. Or um, I was always interested in mechanical things. So like, I take apart my toys to see what made it do the things it did. Oh, and wow. of course, I was, you know, that they, they called me the hellion for that. Cause I'd be like, mom, look, this is how the speaker works. And it's all they heard was, look, mom, I just broke my toy that you just got me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I really, um, I've always been fascinated by that. And I feel like in a different setting that could have been fostered and I would have probably lent into something else. My dad was an engineer, like both mechanical and electrical. So I feel like that part of him, I got. But hey, dad um, honest. But, <laughs> but in the end, it's still, um, because I didn't have the structure in school, I went to a different school for every year. I didn't have the foundation to really like go into the sciences in that way. You switch schools every single year? Every year. Why? Because economic disenfranchisement, my mom moving around for a different job, like we wouldn't move wherever her job would be. Um, I wish it could be like, oh, I was a military brat or, you know, we were a researcher or whatever, but basically it's bit of the life of a migrant, a hardworking immigrant who basically has to follow wherever the work goes and um, us having been the contingency of that. That um, must've really shaped your, your personality in so many so. ways. Yeah. I think in a way it made me more introverted, but it also made me more expansive of, um, or more empathetic to other kids. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. I mean, you were exposed to so much more than most children were, and you yeah. got to experience so much more. I think I just had a very curious, like, mind about the world and, um, a lot of, especially very gender normative spaces, is this thing of, of having girls be quiet. Like there's that phrase in Spanish, um, it, I don't know if it'll translate, but like you look best or you look your cutest when you're quiet and silent or when you're, te ves más bonita con esta, what is it? Con la boca calladita or something like that. Um, but this, this, curiosity about the world, this kind of like tomboyish, tumbling around, climbing trees, falling off things was not uh, very sightly. <laughs> I mean, when I think back to my childhood, um, and I don't remember who, if anybody said this to me directly, if it's just a phrase that I knew, but it's, it's children are to be seen and not heard. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that is like the baseline. And I, I was talking to someone too of, um, I remember I, I saw a writing and I forget where I, uh, I read it of how um, the direct gaze in or like averting your gaze, like thinking of this in the context of police brutality and the black community, how in the overseer 
um, inflicted power structures by not by by not allowing you to have direct gaze. Like mm -hmm. you had to like yes sir no sir and like look away. Like and that's something that's I don't know how much of that still influences the Caribbean, but a child child meaning like an 80 year old to their whatever 100 year old parent still has to say blessings parent so uh you know bendiciones bendicion mami sion papi um and you show respect by averting your gaze you cannot look forward you cannot look have direct eye contact so you have immigrant kids coming in from other countries in latin america who are trying to be deeply respectful by not looking at the teacher directly in the eye and the teacher is seeking that as absolute disruption and misbehavior and then punishes them for what they perceive as like deeply respectful behavior. And it's that translation of how much of that overseer gesture is being is is part of what is a sign of is is inherited as signs of respect in Latin America. It's interesting. I mean it's basically a, a cultural cue. Right, yeah. that's that's either missed or misconstrued. Yeah, yeah. I remember even for me as an adult, it was still hard to have direct eye contact. It's because I had part of that children are to be seen and not heard. I, I because I was such a like hellion as a little kid, I wanted to be a really good kid. I, um, my mom came to the states when I was very young, you know, like being raised by my aunts and grandmothers, and my elder sister that fighter was also beautifully behaved she's always someone who has always been like very she's a libra she's someone who always takes care of her appearance always wants to like traverse space in a very mindful way um so my mom was very much looking forward to bringing her here but i was uh, the one who was like running around and like breaking toys and climbing trees and so <laughs> I remember at five being like, oh crap, she's not going to want to take me there. She's the, uh, all these things. So I have to prove, I have to work doubly hard for her to be like, okay, you can stay, which yeah, was a bit traumatic, but I feel like it helped me navigate. I, it actually helped me assimilate into the U.S. far more quickly than my sister in that sense, which was kind of tough. But, yeah. How so? How did that help you more? It, um, I was so cued into my pleases and thank yous that um, even though we moved into different schools, so much of American education system, especially in the South is about social promotion. It's not about you learning a lesson, but proving to a teacher that you are a malleable behaved person that won't raise a ruckus in the outside world. Like now it's testing, you do the test, you behave well and you're passed on. Even though you might not have retained information, even though you didn't like learn in a way, really, you were passed on. You moved mm -hmm. on. So like I you had, demonstrated like a proficiency in in the ability to be socialized and that yeah, was sufficient. Pretty much. Um you said something that I found really interesting when you were talking about how an aversion of the gaze is um a sign of respect. <clears throat> and I thought about how in your paintings, there's often the eyes are, are foregrounded mm -hmm. and direct, mm -hmm. directly engaging with the viewer. Yeah. Um, and it's absolutely, yeah, that that's, um, it. I didn't, now that I think about it, it is a, it is a reaction to like a confronting of that, but also because so much of my formative life has been in the US and understanding how it is a currency to have that agency, that, that connection, that is almost a requirement of like civic honesty or, or like transparency. Um, it's my way of learning that and giving that to the work. So even though I cannot always perform it in a way that is expected um, because I'm still stuck in that bridge between both spaces, I want the work to have that uh, and to interact in unequal, unequal terms with the audience that are mostly getting to see it, which is people in the US. I love that. 
All right. So I want to make sure I get the chronology right. So walk me through. You were born mm-hmm. 1981. Dominican Republic. Dominican yes. Republic. Yes. And then like, take me through the arc. And so then it meant my mom left to the U.S. when I was about five, but she also divorced when I was very, very young, like around two, mm-hmm. which meant that I was from like maybe four months being cared for by aunties and grandmothers. Um, because she's been always a person who worked and made sure to take care of not only her daughters, but her extended family. So whatever job she had was to take care of her sisters and her mother and her like, the entire extended family would be part of what she considered her commitment to produce for. Um, So, but it meant that like, I had a a very sweet aunt who was like, you know, was that Zen energy that kind of helped us brought some sweetness to our upbringing. Um, She was the one that we were raised by mostly. What do you mean brought some sweetness? What would you do? She's just like, it's funny because she's this very religious person who um, is not necessarily religious in the the dogmatic kind of way, but in a very spiritual way. So she, in like how we prioritize, there's so much uh, importance placed on meditation She's someone who I think meditates for at least 15 minutes every day. She wakes up pre-dawn. All mm-hmm. the rituals that are put in place by like Buddhism or like Islam, like I told her, Fia, you're almost, you're, you follow all the tenets of Buddhism. I wish you could actually like look into it. Um, she, she's always been someone who's not about, um, she's always has emotional equilibrium. She's um, very soothing, like, my sister's new baby she's like six months old and she's a very skeptical baby she will like first look at people primary contact is my sister like you know you could be the loveliest person but if she doesn't read your energy right she's not gonna smile at you let alone open her arms to you that sounds like discernment to me (laughs) very much I'm like I see you little girl and I'm excited for you (laughs) but my aunt is someone who she just, it has such sweet energy that that very skeptical child just opened her arms and giggled for her. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. that's the kind of like energy my aunt has. And I've really appreciated her for that because my mom was like always a warrior, like she will cut you. <laughs> like she's not someone who will take anything from anyone and will be on battle mode, but it left very, um, little room for sweetness in that. And my aunt was someone who balanced that in a way that was very crucial. Yeah. Um, So in your early years, you were sort of wrapped in this cocoon of grandmothers and aunties and moms. Aunties, we'd have like two years with someone. So the consistent, I feel like that's why I'm so bonded with my older sister is that we're like war survivors. We have our own stories we can share. We would share the same bed. Like, even though she she was just like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure she was like, oh, there goes the brat again. Like, I can't believe the hellion is here again. Like, why can't you conform? And, um, but those are things we share now and that she can just be like, yeah, I remember this. Or we can see with new light things that we did back in, you know, through our upbringing. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like two years with this family, two years with that family and like moving forward until we came to the States and then we were with our mom. Um, but so that meant like we usually had like a year cycle of like living in a space and moving and doing to different towns or were most were the homes all in the same general vicinity? General vicinity. Uh, so in Dominican Republic, different towns, but Dominican Republic is fairly small. So we would move from like the capital to the border and back and forth in between. Um, and there were like student protests. I remember like, I, I include burning tires so much in my work now, but burning tires were a consistent thing whenever you'd have a strike, a huelga. Um, and so it's like uh, thinking of, of this gesture that um, might potentially hurt you. It, the smoke can definitely get into your lungs. It shuts down the road, but it gets your voice heard. It like, you know, you cannot just ignore it. Um, but rem- like whenever there would be a protest in the city, my mom would send us to the countryside. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, it'd be that ebb and flow back and forth. And that those are memories, you know, if she left to the States before I was five, it's kind of like, 
first like you know foundational memories yeah of being in the Republic. and how how far back does your family go in the dr and in haiti because your, so, your paternal side is haitian and your maternal mm -hmm, side is haitian dominican and dominican and like yeah i mean the first biases they say that the biases in the dominican republic are descendants of two philandering brothers who came in the 1700s <laughs> they had families from one side of the island all the way to the Haitian side. Uh -huh. And the ones that primary, like the family in Haiti is mostly called Baptiste. Oh. And I have both Bautista, Baptiste and Baez. So these, someone tried to recreate the Baez family tree. And yeah. So the story <laughs> is that- They weren't cut out. <laughs> they, they, they basically like uh, were tasting the flavors of the country and settled on finally married one cute girl. So the legit one, the, the official wife, yeah, was someone closer to the um, Santiago border, Santiago, Santiago side. So it's just, I don't know. There's there's very little concrete, like, you know, there, I'm so jealous of families who have like written histories or families who kept logs of things like that. But um, that grandmother of industry, she had like archives, she had mm -hmm. things, she, she was second generation from her and from like her mother was from Spain. She was that wave of immigrants that were brought in by the government to try to like, quote unquote, whiten the race. Um, and she had logs, she had uh, finances, she was given land, she had things. And because of patriarchy, she had five children, four girls and one boy. Mm -hmm. And the youngest was the boy. She left everything to her son with a caveat that he'd take care of her daughters. So he didn't. He basically, his wife convinced him to sell everything and move to the capital. So the land that should have been shared between siblings became the inheritance of his children. Wow. And so his his side of the family is like they're well off, they're the doctors, they're the landowning, like you know, different things. They they, um, it's kind of funny because Haiti is named land of mountains. It's a Taino word for land of mountains. Mm -hmm. My memory of the Dominican Republic is of a land of mountains. I just remember the beautiful, you know, steep hills that could go into the ocean. The other side, the wealthier side of the island is usually like fields that would be probably easier to grow farmland in or to graze cattle. Um, they now have land in, the, in that area. They're mm -hmm. like, you know, different there. It's a whole, wholly different experience. Like, you know, their kids got to go and like study at um, like at Harvard or, or like do programs, they're cellists. So my way into the arts was completely different from their access to the arts or to different um, academic spaces. How would you describe your entry into the art? Arts I feel like thing? I was really a beneficiary of the, I don't know if it was endowment for the arts or, or the things that created those after school programs and that still had art classes available for students. Mm -hmm. um, if it, every school I went to, I would always make sure to sign up for the art club or I'd be the one who would be doodling and the teacher would lean into that and have me draw the sign for the class or the next poster for something else. Um, and those were crucial spaces that I don't know if I would have had in DR at all. So have you always understood yourself as an artist? Yeah. I always understood it was a vital thing for me to be. Mm -hmm. um, even so like we'd have to go to a new house and I'd have a new room and I'd have to, I'd create an environment and it's, it was, you know, funny to think of them as environments now, but like <laughs> I would create a fantasy of that space. If I wanted to have like the princess room or I'd, I'd have like my um, uh, oceanscape or like it'd be something I'd create an environment that I would literally fall out of the world into. Um, and I'd be the one making drawings for the neighbors or doing things like that. And I, I knew it felt good and that it felt like an extension of myself, but I didn't understand how crucial it was until I 
had the idea of maybe not being able to do it. Um, I feel like even if I had done any job, I would still have been doing something creative because my mom is very creative. Mm -hmm. um, but I was studying psychology before I, I went to community college and I decided to like, okay, if I can't do art, I'll do therapy. I'll be a therapist. Um, which of course, every student goes into psychology thinking that they're going to, you know, be able to analyze themselves and analyze their family. And <laughs> it's a whole other ball game when you have to do statistics and chemical organic chemistry. Um, so around that time, um, we were required in Miami-Dade to take an art class. We had to take an art elective. Um, and the, I took an oil painting class and the teacher said, you have a gift. There's a school that's free in New York. Why don't you apply for it? And that's how I ended up here. But wow. if it hadn't been for her intervention, I would have been in a whole other art wouldn't have been feasible. What an extraordinary story, honestly, for so many reasons. First of all, art is so often the first thing it's taken out of schools. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, having a teacher so invested and encouraging, um, having that the the impetus to make such a substantial change in your life are you still in touch with that teacher um so she we i couldn't i didn't like i tried i like i did drive-bys i was like claudia <laughs> all these different things so i think um part of it too was it was very smart on her end because she didn't say this is a very competitive school that only admits 30 students a year it's mm -hmm. like this home test is like you know a hail mary if you ever get it she just said it's a free school. Why don't we try out this test? Like here, here are yeah. the questions. Let's see how you can solve this. And I was like, okay, let's do it. So I don't think they expected it to work, but they wanted to give me a try. Um, and so when I came back and I said, oh my God, I'm in, I think it shocked them too a little bit. And so <laughs> it was hard to keep like, you know, in touch with that. Yeah. What was your first experience of New York? Oh my gosh. After the sunlight of Miami and the Caribbean, <laughs> I saw this sea of brown buildings and this gray sky. And I was like, why is it so drab? <laughs> it's so dark. And I, um, you know, I, I still am reacting to that transition of light. And mm. I didn't, because I was so sheltered and because I had um, family members you know, there's people who grew up in the Bronx who've never been to a museum in the, in the city. Yeah. Um, who certain cultural parts that we take for granted or that we revel in in, in the arts or um, in New York are not part of what they find pleasurable or like think of as cultural capital. If, you, if all you have is a weekend or one day off a week, you're going to try to like do things like get your hair done, go visit family, go have a party, go different... Like a lot of people worked for that time they can go to back to the island and be extravagant. Um, and you can show off all the things that you don't have access to here. Yeah. So there's where you can like flash and do have fun and be a big person. Um, so my stepbrothers, I have seven stepbrothers and sisters mm -hmm. and they didn't see the arts as something that was inviable and their idea of an artist is someone who's like maybe living a precarious life so maybe lots of drugs and alcohol and things that I'm like such a freaking straight edge that <laughs> I wish I had been able to do all those things but um so it just meant that uh they were not the ones who were going to be taking me to a museum or to do all, like see a play or do any of these things because it just didn't seem pleasurable so they were all based here in New York when you came you so had a family grounding I had three step siblings that were here, mm -hmm. but the, when I told them that I came here to do art school, they were like, oh, I see. We don't know about this. You're entering, uh, what is the biblical term for like the, the den of iniquity? It's like Sodom and Gomorrah. You're entering Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> you're like, you know, you're leaving the, the safety of family for this like precarious art life. And we yeah. don't know if we want to be part of that. So um, they, uh, I, I remember I lived with my stepbrother for a summer and I did a, a work, I worked with them for that summer 
And um, after that, they were just like very scared to keep in contact with me because they thought Cooper Union was just like, you know, Sinland. That's so interesting. And all I was doing was just like being a workaholic, uh, taking like 25 credits a semester. So just out of curiosity, a quick aside, how, how have they reacted in the years since as you've created this amazing career for yourself? So they're proud, but they're still like cautious. It doesn't still make skeptical. sense. They're still highly skeptical. Yeah. And when I try to tell them like how, how much like there's really no room for party when you have all these deadlines, they're still like, you know, they think I'm, I'm they're, they're still embedded in that preconception. Hmm. There's one stepsister who is a uh, school teacher. She's a bilingual elementary school teacher. And she's someone who understands the most, like gets, a, a better understanding of it and so Becky's is, is like you know someone who understands the the magnitude of things and it's like willing to celebrate it but the other people also give me side that they're like huh still in that. <laughs> I see <laughs> how does um one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you in the context of this project on lineage is that there's so many themes in your work that echo the same things that I'm super interested in um, exploring, which is, you know, this idea of lineage and genealogies and bloodlines, you know, you've had mm -hmm. exhibitions with those exact words in the title. These are things that you're super invested in exploring. How, how does this idea of lineage show up in your, in your work? Yeah. So I think that, um, I had been doing something very similar to what Saidia Hartman has kind of concretized in her writing that this idea that, um, because we are on this basis of active erasure, where the powers that be had have made efforts to not only not let us see our own lineage, but to see how we are in continuity or intrinsic to specific developments, um, then you have to make out of that absence and you have to fill certain voids um, to acknowledge that we are in absolute continuity and we're crucial to that continuity, you know? Um, it's like a reactive, it's a way of, 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 of um, through a creative pursuit, opening up that discourse and filling in that broken vessel, you know, with, with what's been there, or maybe not even like recreating, but making visible what's already there. I heard you give an artist talk where you, you said, to tell a bigger truth, you have to expand on what's been handed down. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I even, um, even uh, in that expansion, re-establishing value systems or um, creating value systems anew, like um, I, I Idea's novel Wayward Lives, she examines the, the fast girl, like how, um, or the recontextualizing women in the great migration and how villainized they had been historically, but mm -hmm. that really reassessing how um, all the things that we take for granted, women's liberation and free economies and, and different uh, ways of, um, of space for women that's been taken granted by feminist movements for the sake of white spaces um, were carved out by the actions of these young women and we think of that as a time period, but we're still being judged on those same terms now. So yeah. I was actually looking at, um, I remember for the one installation I did for Studio Museum, it was our last F exhibition, um, that just thinking of, I, I had been for a very long time gathering stills of women, young women in these wildings. There are these massive fights that happened um, I mean, I went to different public schools in Miami. So I saw like the space being carved out by these young women. Um, I was uh, thinking of even that agency that Saidia describes of these young women in the 1920s, 1910s mm -hmm. was something that was still being like having to be fought for by my classmates. Like being in an advanced placement class and someone who excels in statistics and world history and who has multiple credits in for college placement, still um, not seeing a place for herself 
in a college. There's no viable way to transition all this knowledge to that. So finding other ways of financial independence and agency. So like that same girl would be stripping at a club. Mm-hmm. She would still find ways of like having bodily autonomy, sexual autonomy. Like what are the places that have to be carved out that are still villainized and that are still, um, you know, not valued as much as they should be. Like these are lessons and spaces that are carved out that I fully respect and I wanna make full uh, space for. I grew up in a very conservative family, but that didn't take away the fact that like, I saw all the women who had to find, um, you know, ways of taking care of their kids, of, of, of um, finding, value in themselves and in their bodies in ways that were maybe not necessarily being cheered or supported by the powers that be. Um, and I granted, I grew up in a like super conservative Saturday, Seventh-day Adventist household. Um, so I think part of, of, of uh, that, uh, that gypsy school education was what made me really empathize with my classmates who had that happen. Um, how did that sense of empathy and and that that grounding in in movement throughout the DR during your formative years show up when you move to the states? Race is conceptualized so differently here, um, and immigrant narratives are so specific depending on where you're immigrating from. So I'm curious to hear you talk about how your identity was shaped by by that transition. Yeah, so I feel like um, I, it's very odd considering that in the Dominican Republic, um, race is so fraught um, and so constructed. Um, I was still aware of that. So I remember one of my very first memories of one of my elementary school in the United States was of being in an auditorium, learning to sing Winnie Houston's, I believe the children are the future, not understanding a lick of it, but understand like still having that be my like, you know, affirming song of plays. Mm-hmm. Um, I only understood the lyrics when I first, when I finally was uh, fully versed in English, maybe three years later, mm-hmm. but learning that song, sitting with a Spanish classmate, a Dominican classmate who herself was dark-skinned, but judging the person in front of us in the row and doing all the Dominican phrenology of like, that black person is not like my black person. My body is cinnamon and sugar and caramel. I'm not black. Look at the shape of their skull. They're this, and I'm just like really questioning that and like talking to her about that then. And I couldn't value that until I was older, just being like, hey, we don't have to absorb these things in the same way. We don't have to inflict violence in the same way. Why do we perpetuate it? Um, but yeah, consistently keeping that same awareness or that awareness has been there since then or since before then. We've talked a good bit about um, your bloodlines and family genealogies. One of the mm-hmm. other things that this project is exploring is this idea of cultural genealogies, you know, mm-hmm. so the artistic ancestors who inform our walk. Mm-hmm. Who who would you cite in that sense? So I feel like I have a deep affinity for writers, especially because, especially writers who can encapsulate time. Um, writing is not like, it doesn't flow like honey out of me. It's not easy. I feel like making a painting is something that I can just um, let, I can be in flow far more easily than I could ever be with writing. So when I see someone who writes um, beautifully and who's able to encompass multiple times and um, voices in one. So like I've talked to Roxane Gay about this and Edwidge, Nanticat, and like seeing Saidia's writing, it's like poetry, you know? Um, She's, making these hard exclusive spaces that are um, very much uh, constructed around erasure into inclusive spaces. She's, she's transformed them. These women um, transformed the, the negating archive into something that is you know, expansive. Um, so someone like Edouard Glissant, for instance, there's 
a lot of um, people who have made, um, who've opened up minds. Um, and then of course there's visual artists. I feel like um, because my understanding of um, art um, is always so focused on what I find like pleasurable or what I wanna know more about, I have a, a wide visual vocabulary, but a very specific lexicon of people I kind of like go to um, in terms of actually remember their, remembering their names. So I know a lot of art, but the people who I actually like are eidetic, like stay there mm -hmm. are like very few. So someone like Carrie James Marshall or, and that's probably why I try to keep like the library here. So I can be like, oh, that, that person in the canon who like people always refer to, but um, so Lorna Simpson, especially like her photography, Simone Bay, like Elia Alba. Um, I have, you know, all the women that basically probably form the, the temple of our, of our, like who we look at, you know, <laughs> it's probably everyone who I've been um, informed by, like, I love Wangeshi's work. Um, it's just, yeah, like everybody that have become our heroes, basically. Are there any ancestors that you point to or anybody when you first came to Cooper Union um, all those years ago that you learned about their work and you said, aha? So here's the thing, Cooper Union, as much as it's uh, meant to be uh, free and open society. And it was meant to be, the, the, the motto literally was the gateway of, of, for the city, for like, you know, the immigrant gateway to the city of New York. Mm -hmm. um, you enter in through the narrowest point and you exit into graduation through the, the doorway that opens up to uptown. Um, <laughs> it still had out of 30 students, two or maybe three of color. Um, and I think when I went into school, there was a burnout of identity politics. So anything that at all pointed at specificity, at cultures that were maybe not necessarily as known within the American context were really pushed back against. So it was a heyday of zombie formalism, abstract, you know, you could, a lot of abstraction. So it meant that I had a lot of pushback against figuration mm -hmm. and I had a lot of pushback against um, speaking of my specific history. And I had to, you know, it felt like heaven to me because it was access to the art world. I wanted to take every possible medium. Mm -hmm. I took classes in every department because if I was going to be allowed into the gates of heaven, I was gonna make sure <laughs> I went into every department. <laughs> I, I uh, because I had, credits from um, community college before, I could have graduated a year early. Mm -hmm. And I went crying to the counselors being like, why do you want to kick me out early? Oh. Why don't you want me to stay? <laughs> you know, like this was, you know, such a gift. But in retrospect and coming out of that, I had to take two years to unlearn some things that were part of that. So yeah. it took one of the first projects I did were um, to really revel into figuration and to then make them speak specifically to my bodily experience and my cultural experience. Um, and there are these um, very soft gray portraits of women um, embracing their natural hair and having these birds kind of nest and come into their hair and referring back to a childhood story that was always told to me as a warning of why I should comb my hair and why I should be mindful of where the extra hair went. So like, they, if you don't comb your hair, it's going to become a nest. And if a bird comes and takes your hair, then you're going to be stuck in a tree and your soul is going to be in limbo. <laughs> you can go to heaven and you can't be grounded on earth. So this idea of that connection to nature and to um, maybe, you know, thinking of your spirit being embedded in every part of your body um, was something I wanted to just honor. And then there it's funny because now thinking of Emmy Sherwood's work, how um, she talks of that, the gray skin tone as this 
very clear indicator of a specific navigation of race in America or, or how race formation in the US and all the figures, I didn't wanna build up that contrast in the figure. I didn't want them to be like high chiaroscuro or very, very light because I wanted to create that middle space that I was very conscious of navigating and people around me navigating. Um, and now, you know, unpacking, I feel like my work since then has been unpacking and an expansion from that project forward. But that was basically like the first time I felt like I had purged some of the lessons out of Cooper. In your work, I see it, I see the exploration of race happen like in the symbolism, mm -hmm. right? Like you incorporate Afro pics or, you know, Black Panther images. Yeah, or, so I yeah. think that that became too um, limiting for me. Oh. So then, the, no, 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 the, the, the reason I worked so symbolically was because I felt like it opened up the lexicon and the what the roadmap I could give for the viewer to look at. I felt like as long as I stuck specifically to um, skin tone, it was very highly legible and we could have very clear conversations, but they were in a sense limiting to those parameters. So the project I did after that was where I um, did a, every day a portrait um, where I would document the color of my forearm and the silhouette of my hair. And it's like highly legible. I did that for two years. It was became a calendar. Um, I love that series. Thank you. And it's, it, it was like, you know, a way to warm up in the studio, but it, for me, it didn't feel generative enough. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like, probably would have been very successful to keep, continue that series because it's so, it's a shared language. We know the parameters and it's, but it felt like I grew bored. <laughs> I wanted more. I wanted to build Octavia Butler worlds. I wanted to have, imagine different futures. Imagine like ways of complicating, like we're, we're complicated beings with complicated histories. So I wanted the work to reflect that. My favorite Octavia quote is, there's nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was the hope. I wanted to, to bring new sons. Um, yeah. yeah. And like, maybe so one now, day I'll, I'll do that. I'll do more, more of that direct work. I'll <laughs> says you're already doing that. <laughs> um, and now you're about to make your biggest sculpture to date. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in terms of, um, making the unseen scene, like bringing legibility and, and empathy. Um, I am quite literally bringing the scale and the grandness of the, the Northern Kingdom of Haiti. Like it's the only black kingdom of the only black Republic in the Americas, in the Western hemisphere period. So um, there's a Sanssouci in Eastern Germany and Berlin that is, was made contemporaneously with the Sanssouci in Northern Haiti. And like that site, they both had that um, yellow paint that was every Sun King's aspiration um, and the copper ceiling. So um, they're both world heritage sites uh, that have very different embeddedness in our cultural memory and very different treatment in the baseline of economics. So um, I wanted to bring that. It's like the Atlantic, you know, like a palimpsest revealed it's under layers and I'm bringing that site to Boston. And in our American um, identity formation, Boston is this revolutionary site, the bed of waspish Americana, <laughs> like, you know, it's the, the bulwark of, of, of a certain identity politics. and. Um, just understanding how um, indebted it is, how enmeshed it is with histories within the Caribbean and specifically that side in Northern Haiti. Um, Let me conclude by asking you um, to talk about where, where do you find home? What does the idea of home mean for you? That's one of the narratives that we're asking. We, I ask people to, um, especially considering how many of us were more to one specific place that we had to call home and how that was a luxury that wasn't given for many people. Um, I asked people to give me uh, 
hopefully send me that what their experience of home is and what their experience of migration has been. And home for me for the longest time just meant my body because I was always moving everywhere. Um, so, and then even being further removed from that where like um, being in my mind a lot. So then it was a room within a room within my home. So it was like, <laughs> if this was inception, I was in the third layer of the dream. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my brain was this fantastic world that I was constantly making and mediating. Um, and that happens for all of us, but some of us can experience sensorily more than others. Um, so then it's an effort to then be, my way of anchoring was then to make whatever room I was. And in New York, you know, the experience for a lot of us is having many roommates and maybe moving in different spaces. So making sure that wherever I was, you know, as an artist who's always been in love with the, the act of making and who's like enmeshed in like the, you know, I'm not someone, the process reveals the concept and the work. It's, it's an embedded part of the pro You cannot uh, untangle one from the other. Um, the studio was always the, the space that was most luxuriant or like the space that I spent most time in. So I would come home to just sleep. So home meant like the most luxurious bed I could possibly get wherever I was. It was like always this cloud I would come home to and then go quickly in the morning to like um, continue making something new. I heard you say something once where you were talking about this kind of idea of co-creation with your audience. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that you you create this work, but then the the process of understanding it and, and the, the imbuing of meaning comes as a collaborative thing. Absolutely. And I, I think that's why I didn't find those um, very uh, easily conceptualized works generative. Um, they are, they fit, and I, I feel like part of a lot of conceptual work is having very clear parameters that are shared and then um, consumed by the viewer. But that means that you limit the conversation. Like you get the sentence, you solve the puzzle and it's done. Um, but part of the co-creating for me is this continual ideation and conceptualization by the viewer. So what you see one year can be transformed by your lived experiences when you come to it 10 years later or through a lifetime. I want it to be um, reflected and built on. That's why the symbolic language, the, the layering of surfaces, the, the, yeah, really packing in to be unpacked by you as you look at it over time. Love. <laughs> Anything we should talk about that we haven't yet? Uh, no, come to Boston, see the work. <laughs> I would uh, love to. Like so much of painting um, that I get to enjoy as a painter is like, there's a lot of surface that's built up. There's things that I get to like, you know, I wish museums were different, that they had, that it was allowed for people to come in and, and, and touch the painting and come closer and like experience it in a way that I think this sculpture allows. And I see so many people do where in a way that I see people trying to do with my paintings, but the institutions will not allow, people will lean into the building and rest their cheek against something. They'll put their babies on a corner. They'll like um, <laughs> try to have lunch and like sit in up and, and right by it. It's this permeable painting that gets to be, gets to be uh, experienced in time and space. So um, I'm just saying, come experience it from Boston. I don't need convincing. I always <laughs> tell people on this show, I'm a friend and a fan because <laughs> the opportunity to talk with people whose work I, I love. Like it's, it's such a joy for me. So yeah, I'll, I'll be there with bells on. Hopefully we'll be able to travel again and get it all together. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for oh taking this time with me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks yeah, for taking time you. and for creating the space for, you know, as an artist, I feel like a podcast are one way to, especially as a hermit gets to spend so much time in the studio. This is podcasts are such a connection to the art world and to the world at large. Um, there's so much art information that is never turned into audio and it makes 
in terms of accessibility and um, disenfranchises is whole audiences and yeah. having this be an audio thing as much as I love and appreciate text um, just opens up our thinking our processes our you know it's like everything yeah no I Thank agree you. 100% I am um, I really see this as a core part of my practice you know absolutely yeah. and exploring these ideas with um, like you said our our heroes and getting to live yeah. and walk and make and talk with your heroes is, is it's mind-blowing sometimes I get tongue-tied in these conversations <laughs> just thinking like how do I you know I've, I've you've created worlds you've 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 like done all these things and I'm at the table with you this can't like I can't compute so <laughs> I spend a little bit of time geeking out and like falling apart and then we can have the conversation <laughs> and just remember you you at that table too <laughs> I know I know I know and it's like I have to like get into the mentors like I have to be on the like you know we're at this bridging point where um I've I've carved out space and yeah it's so <laughs> different mindset yeah getting there yeah but it's about respect at the end of the day so I get it absolutely maybe it's that 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 lesson of of direct gaze I have to start, stop eyes. averting my gaze and actually like having that direct eye contact so we can have communication at different level but yeah come on full circle full circle <laughs> 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 I love thanks, it. Johnny. thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed what you heard please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on apple podcasts it helps others discover the show you can follow us on instagram at lineage podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch my new meditative film we hold these truths it features reflections on ancestry from season two lineage guests and was produced with the Park Avenue Armory. The lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com and stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday. <laughs>